I'm really pleased to introduce tonight's moderator, Rick Kleffel. Mr. Kleffel is a book reviewer and broadcaster for National Public Radio, whose work has been heard on All Things Considered, Morning Edition, Weekend Edition, and other nationally syndicated programs. He's written for the San Francisco Chronicle and the British publication Interzone. His weekly long hour radio show of author interviews from NPR affiliate KUSP is called The Agony Column. You can find The Agony Column online at bookatron.com backslash agony, where he podcasts literary reviews, interviews, readings, and conversations five days a week. Please give a warm welcome to Mr. Rick Kleffel. Thank you very much. Tonight's presentation will be in 3D. (laughs) (laughs) The late Sir Arthur C. Clarke once suggested that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Now, he was referring to the kind of gadgets that I bet everyone here has, cell phones, televisions by which we can see the dead, iPads by which we can remember where our brains are, all the kinds of technology that we think about as just gadgets. But I am suggesting there is another kind of technology that, when sufficiently advanced, is indistinguishable from magic, and that is the technology that the artists of this world bring to bear in their art. When someone is sufficiently skilled, can summon an image, write a sonnet, create a movie, create a visual image, a sound, anything that can speak directly to the soul, directly to the center of us, to penetrate the mythic center of our hearts. That kind of technology, that kind of writing is equally magical and beyond magic. And in fact, I believe the origins of our first impressions of what was magic. With us today, we have such a magician. (laughs) Since winning the Critics' Prize at the 1993 Cannes Festival and nine Mexican Academy Awards for his first feature chronos, Guillermo del Toro has established himself among the most critically and commercially successful international writer-directors. And fat. His other films include Mimic, The Devil's Backbone, Blade II, Hellboy, and its sequel, Hellboy II, The Golden Army. His 2006 film, Pan's Labyrinth, received six Academy Award nominations and won three Oscars. He's currently co-authoring the horror trilogy, The Strain, which we have the first two wonderful novels out, The Strain and The Fall, with acclaimed novelist Chuck Hogan. Ladies and gentlemen, please give a warm welcome to Guillermo del Toro. Thank you. Thank you. Gracias. Thank you. If, if I fall, it's the fault of this chair. <laughs> really odd. I never sit in these things. They all, everybody tells the director's chair, I never use this crap. <laughs> it's too flimsy. I'm looking for a chaise lounge. Yeah, I, 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 can t- I sit on an apple box, <laughs> like a sumo wrestler. <laughs> now, Guillermo, uh, One of the things that strikes me as the origin, I think, of the power of your art and your storytelling uh, comes from your childhood in Guadalajara. Most of it, yeah. Most of it, because I think that uh, um, I always uh, say that I'm like the the bad-looking version of Benjamin Button, because I'm not going to look like Brad Pitt at any fucking point. (laughs) But, But I am going in reverse. I was extremely old as a child. I was like, incapable of, you know, 
having a good time. I was uh, lonely, pale, uh, thin. Imagine that. I was a lonely, pale, thin, super obsessed uh, with hell, uh, Catholic horrors and all that stuff when I was a kid. And now I basically don't give a fuck much. I mean, I really, I really am comfortable with who I am. So I'm going in reverse. I enjoy life. I, I understand the simpler stuff in life. And as a kid, no, as a kid, I read books uh, obsessively still, but as a kid, it was not even normal. I was, I was truly trying to consume one or two books a, a day uh, for decades, you know? And like, I, I was almost, uh, I was a teenager when I slowed down to two books a week. Now I have slowed down further, but I, it's because I, I, contrary to my childhood or teenage years, I've discovered the pleasure of being with uh, people I love, you know, like my wife and daughters, and I can relax up to a point. So <laughs> most of my narrative drive comes from those horrible years as a kid. And it's not that I was beaten or, or locked in a closet, although I was both. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it's because I think that there are certain spirits uh, souls that are born uh, incredibly um, sensitive to the world around them, and you are that way since you are a tiny kid, and uh, and you are affected by it in a much deeper way than more less permeable, stronger skins of the soul. So everything I learned about horror, I learned as a kid. Let me put it that way. You know, one of the things that your works have a universal appeal, they re reach across cultures, and we can... I'm going to fucking fall. <laughs> I tell you, it's going to be horrible, <laughs> and my veil is going to show up, and it's going to be atrocious, <laughs> but I warned you. Go ahead. <laughs> it's going to be horrible. Your, your, uh, as a... Uh, as a child, one of the things I know you did, uh, your work has this universal appeal. I think a lot of people get it. And I think that comes from that your experience as a child when your father won the lottery yeah. and uh, bought you an encyclopedia, which you read from two, a, two encyclopedias. A, a to Z. Which ones? My father, uh, I was four years old and I had won a, a little plastic truck in the church fair and, and my father won the lottery. <laughs> And everybody kept saying, congratulations. I, I didn't know why everybody was so happy about the truck, the, the plastic truck I won. But uh, he, he did win. He became um, sort of a, a nouveau riche, you know, and part of the, this uh, new lifestyle. Somebody told him that a gentleman has a library. So he built a library. But then he realized he needed books. And, uh, he, and that library became my library because he never, ever stepped in in that library. <laughs> I think he sat at the desk one time. And, and uh, amongst the books he bought, he bought two encyclopedias. One was the Encyclopedia Familiar de la Salud, an encyclopedia about family health, where I did, saw the first picture of a breast. And I learned everything you need to learn about diseases. I became the world's tiniest hypochondriac. <laughs> I, I read it all from first volume to last volume. And the other one was called, um, it was a, 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 the, the, the Las Bellas Artes, the fine arts. And it had, uh, all the volumes were like 12 volumes or something like that. And I read everything about great painters, great sculptors, 
all the way to this is 1968, you know, to Calder, Miro, uh, really cutting edge stuff back then. And, and, but I, I read them over and over and over again. And I literally became not fascinated, but I found as deep a system of belief in biology as I did in, in religion. In other words, for me, the mechanics, the dogma, the construction of biology, uh, religion, and the arts became enmeshed with everything that was happening to me at age four. Hammer films, universal monsters. So whatever happened, the eclosion of that, that little larva that I was is what I am. You know, I'm, I'm just the result of uh, enjoying the most strange influences as a kid and taking them to heart. I learned how to speak English with a dictionary and uh, famous monsters of Filmland and Mad Magazine. All right. I was <laughs> Forrest Ackerman. Forrest Ackerman. I, I was I, I, in, in, in Guadalajara on Sundays, they would show uh, movies, Universal Monster movies on TV all day long. Oh, really? One after the other. Is it all day chiller? Yeah. Wow. It was. Cool. I mean, they, they also showed other, you know, noir and drama. Mm -hmm. But every now and then it was like a creature from the Black Lagoon, the Black Cat. You had all this in a row, and, and they were subtitled. So I, I would listen to the funny words and read the subtitles, and then went and read the magazines, and I wanted to know what the images were, and I had a dictionary. And I mean, I, it was a very odd childhood. My dad, my dad was able to, he bought a Super 8 camera, which again, somebody <laughs> told him was great, and he never used it, <laughs> never used it. So I took it and started making short films. And you also were a kid, and you spent a lot of time running around underneath Guadalajara, didn't you? Yeah, it, that was a little later. On the, on the beginning, I used to, uh, my, again, we had a very, very old childhood. Uh, this, uh, I lived a lot with my great aunt, whom I called my grandmother. So I was between the house of my father uh, and mother, which was this strange, modernist, sort of Luis Barragan mansion when nobody saw anybody. I mean, I literally, weeks went, it was like out of a Jose Donoso novel, you know, weeks would go and I would never see anyone. I would always find food in the fridge and I would be completely alone. Nobody gave a fuck. <laughs> I know, nobody went to see, oh, is the child breathing? Nothing. Like, you know, is he in his bed? Did he ever came back from that party? <laughs> and we were like, and, and it was literally, you could skateboard on the hallways. And then going to my mother's, my grandmother's house or great aunt, and it was the opposite. Everything, every, you know, it was very narrow, old. Uh, uh, my, uh, my aunts, one of them was in a wheelchair. The other one was uh, deaf, entirely deaf in one ear. And when she didn't, in both ears and had one ear in eight, when she didn't want to hear you, she would pop it out. Uh, and, and, you know, it was like, like an, another world, very bizarre, baroque, but very enmeshed lives. And I, I was going back and forth, and I was finding my own way in the world. I was uh, doing makeup effects with wax and blood and ketchup, and I would uh, buy makeup effects stuff when we went to America, and I would make a gash on my forehead and throw myself from the chimney, <laughs> call the nanny and go, ah, and fall into hidden pillows, and she would go freak out. 
until I really fell. And <laughs> I made a gash exactly where it still is. And I went to my mother bleeding, and she was making herself up. And I said, I'm bleeding. And she says, yeah, right. And I, and I got to my father and I said, I'm bleeding. And by this time, I have blood. And my father said, oh, go to your mother. I got to my mother, the long corridor, and I fall down unconscious. <laughs> and then they took me to the hospital. You know, but I cannot emphasize how weird my... And, and we were, my brothers and I, we, just so you know how unsupervised we were. I mean, seriously, my, my father should get an award. He was doing iron horses in a motorcycle with me in the back without a helmet. You know, like, it was, he, we were racing, my, my brothers and I, unbeknownst to them, we were racing hundreds of serpents in, in the house. Really? And, then, you know, and they were escaping in the neighborhood. And my brother and I started a business that nobody cared for where we trained falcons for retrieval. And we really trained them. I trained a crow who became my mascot. Uh, we had deers. We had a, a lion cub. We had an eagle that was illegal to have. <laughs> but we were nursing it back to health. I, you a had a zoo. It was a very strange childhood. Uh, yeah, I'm guessing. <laughs> now... Uh, I'd like you to talk about uh, your reading in this childhood. You read, you read uh, the um, encyclopedia. How about comic books? Um, I, when I was looking at uh, uh, The Devil's Backbone, I yeah. saw uh, the, uh, Carlos arrives with a, a load of comic books, yes. and Which, I was wondering if those right. were yours. Well, my, my, my grandmother, who adored me, and I adored her, and she really spoiled me in a beautiful way, and I... You know, the Kronos is dedicated to her because it's a love poem to imperfect people loving each other, you know, which is the whole point of most of the movies I do. Uh, I, I, she, we would go Tuesdays. Uh, the new comic books com would come up, and she would go with me, and I would, she would say, I'll buy you two, and I'd come back with a stack of 20 <laughs> every Tuesday. And I was, and I would put them next to my supper or my dinner, and I would go through them, and then I would keep them, and like every other kid, my mother threw all my comic books away when I was a kid. Yeah, she not only threw them away, she burned them. She which was, burned them? Yeah, I said, she, I came back and she said, oh, we threw your comics away. I said, well, why? Because they were all in a horrible mess. In the, I said, it's not a mess. They were classified alphabetically. <laughs> you know? And I said, where are they? And she says, they're in the in the lot next door. I ran to the lot and they were on fire. And I came back and said, they're burning. I said, oh yeah, I told them to burn them. <laughs> so, you know, all those comics I had as a kid were lost. I, I've been able to gather more or less the same titles and stuff like that, but now they're not my, my comic books in that movie. But, but it's the same spirit. When we were kids, we would trade comic books. We would trade them for the most outlandish stuff. You know, I did, I did trade... Uh, very anatomically imaginative and inaccurate illustrations of naked women for, for comic books. <laughs> and they were drawn the wrong way, like in Devil's Backbone. <laughs> you know, but that's the age when you're kissing your elbow, you know, <laughs> to see how it feels. <laughs> so, you know, it, those comic books were gold for me. You know, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about is the, the way you approach your work. Mm -hmm. When you're starting to, to write on a project, like something like Kronos or, or uh, Pan's Labyrinth or Devil's Backbone, yeah. uh, 
how do you, do you um, have an intention in mind? Do you say I want this movie to be about this, or do you go? Do you start with the story, or do you start with an image? You know, you never know. I mean, I really don't know. Sometimes you think you have a movie figured out. I'm I'm in that moment right now with a project I'm writing. I reached page 52, and I stopped. And I can't move past that right now. 72 pages between outline and and I'm. I'm stuck. You never know. I mean, I wish I was a, a guy that is, uh, I'm methodical about doing it. Like, I go every day, and I sit down, and if I'm not writing that, that's why I keep busy. I'm writing an introduction to a book, or I'm writing a preface, or I'm writing another uh, short story. I, I make it a point to write, but I, it often happens to me that I get stuck in the most uncanny ways. And, and, the, and I know it's a, an absolute... Um, cliche when people say the material reveals itself but it does to me uh, and I don't structure in the get go I structure later I think it, you know all this manual approach of how to write a screenplay in 20 days uh, how to fucking sell your screenplay to Hollywood how to it's all bullshit to, to me it's all bullshit for one reason because they're telling you your shoe size and your shoe model and they don't fucking know what foot you have. They really don't. It's trying to cram what is instinct into method. And they don't, they're not compatible. They're not compatible because the desire to tell a story, it's, uh, it's an instinct. It's, it's, it's the loss of sharing images and story with the world. And to, to, to tell you how you have to do it, and in, in many ways, in a dishonest way, because uh, I've read those books, and many of them, I'm not going to say all, but many of them analyze movies, and I want to raise my hand and say, excuse me, you're analyzing a finished movie, which means that the screenplay is not the movie that you are analyzing, because you switch places in the editing room, you throw scenes away, and they, it's not valid. It's not, and then, you know, like, I'll give you an example. One of my favorite movies, Marathon Man. You read the screenplay, which is brilliant, by William Goldman. Very different. And a very different experience. And, and I find that all that stuff, to me, method should be applied once you put the real thing. I'm going to use a very horrible metaphor. I've been very good so far. But you cannot fake that you ate. You cannot vomit what you didn't eat. In the same way, it's the same thing with art. You cannot simulate what is not genuinely inside you. And you cannot try to analyze it. So the moment this thing comes out of you, shaped, not shaped, page 20, everybody dies, page 45, everybody comes back, page 50, the dog runs away. I don't care when you hit those points, as long as it's coming from a genuine place and the thing flows for you, not for anyone else, for you, then... I analyze, and then I systematize, and then that I do this and that. And then it comes to the point where I try to uh, infuse it with an almost literary feeling. And I try to write with images, uh, trying to emulate the density of a novel or the density of literature, but through images and sounds and things like that. And, and for the pacing to be 
that of reading. I don't know. It's very instinctive. I don't know how. I cannot explain exactly. It's just a method I have, and I try to do what I call visual rhyming. You know, that I try for things to rhyme and correspond with each other. But it's after the first temples. You know, like Devil's uh, Pan's Labyrinth had so many things that never made it to the movie. I, there was a, a, a blind man that was the grandfather of Mercedes, and there was uh, originally the, the mother, uh, there was no girl. It was the pregnant mother uh, and the fascist captain, and she, the mother, was the one that fell in love with the fawn. So oh, really? It, yeah, it was completely. <laughs> but I, I think that the saddest journey of the, in the world is the one that follows a precise itinerary. Then you're not a traveler. You're a fucking tourist. You know what I'm saying? 10.30, get into the bus, and 15 minutes in the Calcutta Bazaar for you to enjoy the locals. Then 11.35, have a cup of tea in front of the... That's not living. That's not traveling. You know, you go to a fucking place, you get lost. As I tell to my wife, she says, what are we going to do today? I say, I don't give a fuck because wherever we are, we're in Japan. <laughs> but wherever we are, we're in Turkey. Why, why, do, why do I have to go to India and see the fucking Taj Mahal? I, I want to get diarrhea in a corner <laughs> eating, eating something horrible. I, I, you know, that is going to another country. I, I, it's, it's the same thing for me with, with, with storytelling. You gotta get lost. You gotta get lost. I think, I think it, it's crucial for a storyteller to get lost. So it's very different from what you probably would expect. <laughs> no, it, in fact, I think that's exactly what I'd expect because I think that's the way that you get to the kind of mythic cross-cultural imagery that makes your movies so powerful. And, and but that's, I, also, that's also the way I fuck up. <laughs> <laughs> and, and this is extremely important. I think that uh, I always, uh, I have a very simple saying, which is success is fucking up in your own terms. You know, because I think that we live in a culture where success is the driving force. And I don't think it is. Learning is the driving force. Learning. And if people valued learning like they value success, our whole society would be different. You know? And, and, and we... we we have people that, that are super successful that didn't learn a fucking thing getting there. And, and thus they cannot share anything with anyone. And I think that, that failure teaches you far more than success. Far more than success. And if you don't allow yourself to screw up, then you, you're in an impossible situation. And I don't believe in school. I don't believe in anything organized. I'm a, I'm a crazy man. You know, but I believe that, that we, I do believe that by nature, man, man tends to gravitate uh, towards his, 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 the perfect form of his spirit. But society keeps cramping it. I think the biggest treasure, the biggest, it should be the reverse. I, I would believe in school if it was children teaching the fucking teachers. Because that's the way it should be. Now, not the other way, where you have a perfectly perfectly good spirit and you married, stain it and shape it in a fucking way that has never historically worked. Why are we telling children that this is the way things are? Things are fucked up. So, you know, I, I look, anyway, I'm going <laughs> right, no on tangent. You know. 
you know, one of the themes, I think, in, in your movies that, that crops up is immortality, and it crops up in a variety of fashions. You have... Um, and the Hollywood Reporter. <laughs> <laughs> you, Not you. You, you have... You have uh, you have um, immortal billionaires, and, and you don't like immortal billionaires, do you? You have them, and you started out in Kronos, and you couldn't, you couldn't keep, you couldn't kill them enough, could you? No, I, I, I because I think that uh, the idea of accumulation uh, is truly, truly the root, or one of the roots of all evil. I think because, uh, look, the notion of a billionaire is is alien in a way that, I mean, I, it becomes the ancillary uh, sort of pleasures that derive from being a billionaire, you know? Power, uh, uh, b feeling that you are above the law, feeling these things. Not every billionaire, I suppose. I don't know them all. <laughs> but but I, I would say it's the same crazy thing about, about uh, wanting to live forever. I think living forever would be horrible horrible. It would be incredibly boring. It would be incredibly dead, no pun intended. And, and, and that's why in the movies like Kronos, the, real, the only immortal character is the little girl. Why? Because to be immortal in, real, in reality is to not care about death. That's immortality. If you, if you are thinking of immortality by being obsessed of when is it going to come, I hope I, it never comes, it's horrible. It's absolutely the opposite. Uh, and, and I find it equally perverse than, than having so much money. Listen to this equation. A billionaire is a guy that has so much money that no one, no one near him ever can spend it. Ever. He's going to leave it to his sons or daughters and grandsons and granddaughters and is is absolutely insane. Why? I mean, in my book, it's the, it's a Lovecraftian form of it's, wealth. It's a, it's an absolutely it's, it's real horror. Mm -hmm. It's real horror for me. I mean, I think I, when I was when I was a kid, I used to say, if I have five thousand bucks, oh my god, I'll do this. Oh my god, I'll do that. Now, if you have five thousand bucks, you go, Jesus, I need to get more. You know, and, and it really it's a state of mind. The money doesn't exist. Even the fucking paper is just an IOU that has no, no silver and no gold to support it. But these are the fictions we buy. When people say to me, why, you dwell, why do you dwell in fantasy if such a childish, con childish concern? And I say, you mean like geography and economics and politics and religion? I mean, that, that's stupid? Because it really gets that stupid. You know, this is the end of France and the beginning of Spain, really. Because the, <laughs> the fucking earth looks exactly the same. And that fucking bug just went into France <laughs> without a passport, you know? And you, you trust me that I have money because what? It says so in, the, in my iPad or in, because I have a piece of paper with a dead man that says a fucking number and people like, it's general acknowledgement, it's general agreement. In the same way that people can consider fiction that at some point we all agreed that there was a giant serpent that ate the sun and shed the moon. One is as irrational as the other. And I think that uh, uh, the, the fact that we value reason over imagination is a tr true tragedy.
So all these things, for me, those concerns are, are really interesting uh, to take down, including the concept of billionaires, success, happiness. I, re I say that in the strain. I say, uh, I mean, the, uh, 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 the success of a life can only be measured by how much we love, nothing else, I mean, and how much we are loved back. The rest is, I, I think, is bullshit. But, you know, what are you going to do with so much money? I dress like shit. So what am I going to go buy? I mean, I think you have more than $10 million. You have to prove me you're, an, you're not an asshole. Because I, I literally, so let's sit down, have a cup of coffee, and tell me why you're not an asshole. Because anybody with more than $10 million has to prove to people he's not an asshole or she's not an asshole. Seriously. Who the fuck needs more than that? Who the fuck needs more than that? Show me that person. I mean, it's, a, it's fucking sick. And I'm being lenient. <laughs> Ten sounds a little high to me right now. <laughs> fuck it. Uh, it's actually seven. Yeah. Seven million is, is, the, is, the, is the threshold for the top one percent. I, I just don't understand. And, and, and the very fact that we can say the one percent I mean, I, I really think everybody needs to prove to everybody, whatever the social, I'm not saying everybody needs to be in the same line of social work. We cannot all be ecologists or social scientists or try to be uh, doctors without borders. Everybody, everybody, in, uh, you know, the Greeks believed that you didn't need a good government. The Greeks believed you needed good citizens. And I, that is, for me, the ideal political incarnation of any social life. Just tell me, in your own way, in your own little scope, in your own little world, what do you do for the good of others? And if you work at a Kinkos and you're super fucking nice when you photocopy, then you, you, you have my admiration. You're an asshole at Kinkos or at the White House or at Enron. You're an asshole all the same. We, doing what we do with the passion to, to do something for other people and touch other lives is, is truly the only model we have to save ourselves, in my mind. You know, one of the things that you do very well is, is a, explore kind of archetypes and explore our perceptions of reality. And there's a moment in Pan's Labyrinth where the fairy, which first appears as an insect, and you have a thing about insects. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, it appears as a stick insect, and she's talking to it, and she says, you're a fairy, are you? And she shows it a picture of a fairy, and, it, become, and she, it becomes a fairy. And I think that that is a very good an analogy for what you do yes. in terms of transforming our visions of culture and of myths into something we can understand. I think that... Uh, I believe it is the opposite. People say you have to see it to believe it, and I think you have to believe it to see it. You know, I, I really think absolutely everything we see is our perception of the world. Everything we see, everything we feel. And I think that the moment you switch it, it you can switch it to, to, to work for you. To re and I'm not, I'm not going to sell you any fucking tickets to walk over coals and shit like that. It's not, it's not a system. It works for me. Like, it works for me. I, I can flip most any situation. I'm not great at doing it all the time, but I, I really just flip it and say, is it? Is it really 
a bad situation? Is it really good? And I think the girl, the girl, I was, I was a kid, and in the garden there was a, a, an ant, <clears throat> an ant hill. And when I was a kid, I would spend hours uh, talking to the ants. And there was one little ant that I thought was my very best friend. <laughs> and and, and, and I, would, I, would, I would say I could tell you which one it was. I think I was full of shit. But <laughs> at that age, I could tell you who it was. You know, now as an adult, I tell you, I, impossible. All the poorer for me. But at that age, I could have told you who it was. And, and I think uh, the girl, the beautiful moment in that scene for me is that it's a, it's a spiral. I don't believe in the straight lines. I don't believe straight lines in, and that's why I detest the structure of the screenplay. They put it in a, screen, a straight line, act one, act two, act three, middle point, revelation, uh, plot point one, plot point two, fuck you all. Fuck you all, because that, that's a straight line. Straight lines do not exist in nature. They do not exist in nature. And nature is the only model we have for the arts. It, it, there is an intrinsic tyranny in the straight line. It's a fascist fucking line. And spiral, the spiral is the real deal. It's all curvy and spiral and comfy. It's all about that. And I think instinctively, I, I, I believe that the beauty of that scene is that it's a spiral. And that's why it's a motif in my movies. Is the girl telling the reality what she believes that reality is and showing that reality how it looks to her and that reality transforming to reveal itself to the girl. And that's been the story of my life. I come uh, from a country and a place where the movies I wanted to do were impossible. They were saying, you, why don't you do social realism? Uh, movies that are important, and I, uh, that are socially important. I kept saying, I want to make monster movies. Because I think those are socially important. <laughs> You know, and, and I really believed it. And just last couple of weeks ago, everybody was telling me, you cannot insist on Mountains of Madness being R-rated because it's a really expensive movie. And I go, you know what? I can, and I will continue. And I'm a fucking moron because I'm going to keep saying it's R-rated. And I'm not going to, you know, if the MPA gives me a PG-13 down the road, God bless them all. But I, I need to go in saying this is the way I see it. And, and, and now it's R-rated. Now it's R-rated. And, 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 and that changed. And it's the same way uh, every, every, you create your own barriers on that. But you can tell the world how you want it to be. And it's a dialogue. You're not going to get it. It's not a fucking uh, McDonald's where you order. But you, know, you have to riff with the world. And find that dialogue, and it changes. It's not gonna. Can I be, please, much thinner and have a much longer liver? You know, <laughs> it's not gonna happen. You're not gonna. Oh my God, my liver! <laughs> it's it's gonna transform according to a dialogue. But I believe in that. I believe I believe in the world. There is magic, but it's not magic with a fucking wand and Latin. It happens in a different way. You mentioned monsters and. The, the inclination for people to dismiss, dismiss movies with monsters. You are a fantastic manufacturer of monsters. And I'm thinking from the Kronos device, which itself contains this little insect god, what an amazing idea, all the way through to uh, uh, 
the fawn, mm-hmm. um, you've created a series of monsters who are actually characters, and I think that's one of the things that makes your monsters more interesting. Mm-hmm. But also, it's it's important, I think, for us to remember that gods and monsters are the basis for the first stories we told ourselves around fire. Yeah, and, and, and there was a moment where we understand we had a more holistic view of the world. We didn't, we didn't want it to, you know, we made sense of the world through a mythology that was all-encompassing, that was not, uh, that was not uh, centric in human figure, for example. That was, the gods were not necessarily effigies of guys, you know, or angels that are anthropomorphic and so forth. There was a time where we could ascribe uh, the godly presence into a scarab, into a scarab or a jackal or uh, a falcon or a falcon-headed human, or, I mean, we have a far more uh, um, holistic, a far more uh, encompassing relationship with our world. And, and it's little by little that we have mutated into, into, into making things make more sense, even in, our, in the way we see the world. I think that we have forgotten, after, I believe, the age of reason, the moment we say, in order to leave behind the Middle Ages, we have to move past superstition in an almost, in a Maoist, really <laughs> rigid way, at some point the whole cultural world, revolution. a cultural revolution happened in the Western way of thinking that said reason is our new God. And anything, any pursuit that is not the pursuit of reason and science is childish. And, and you have little eruptions that can be the punk movement, or it can be the romantic movement. You know, and the romantic movement says, screw you all, I'm going to throw an emotion above all things. Or it can be uh, punk rockers, or it can be, but definitely, it's, un- it's unnatural. It's unnatural. We are an animal of reason, instinct, and spirit, and fable. We are made of all those things, and we need to provide for all of them. Look, all you have in Facebook, is a chance to believe in human contact again, because it, it feels safe again. Why are the Twilight novels safe and people and g- girls go to them? Because it's the only way, and girls and boys and so forth, a young person can go to the notion of a romantic relationship without feeling silly, because the context allows it. And because we live in a world that where you literally are, uh, are sex messaging and you have, and you, and you are, uh, you are, when you're talking about getting together with a girl or a guy, they're discussing income, how much you make, how much you make every week, how can we join together, are you gonna, it's truly, truly the most base, unromantic, but I'm sure the fucking age of reason uh, conquered, because that's what we get. We get a sterile world, devoid of amulets, devoid of gods, devoided of totems, and devoided of spirit. And I believe that in my personal life, I strive to get all of the above. I talk to my fucking car. I talk to my car. I go, come on, let's go. We call him El Guapo. My car, my car is eight years old. My wife's uh, car is called Eva, like in Wally, because she's white, it's a white little car. And and we, we name our thing. I love these ho- fucking shoes. They're horrible, but I love them. I don't, I don't throw away 
things that I don't. It's not. It's not that. I, it's not the hoarding. It's the naming of the world. It's the owning of the world and the possibility to have amulets that own you back, and that allow you to have a spiritual life. And I think that all these things are lost because of child. Their childish concerns. And I tell you what's a childish concern. Your youth, because it's going to go away. Your fucking credit, because it's not yours. They're just loaning it to you to fuck you up the ass even further. <laughs> and, and any other qualification you need a little paper for. That is bullshit. That is bullshit. And, and, and so, in my view, fable is a way to wisdom. Now, one of the things that strikes me about your work is that you're... I think one of the artists who's taking um, the, um, the fantastic and moving it into the realm of fable to turn, uh, tapping into the universal stories, but you're also tapping into a more modern age than just gods and monsters. Yeah. And I think that one of the things you do very well is to look at the world in a Dickensian manner. And I was <laughs> looking, I was looking at. Uh, the, the Devil's Backbone, yes. which is a, a, a truly Dickensian story. I tried. I tried my best. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Dickens, and the thing, I mean, there are things, there are concerns of Dickens that are particularly English that are alien to me. The notion that class will always save you. Lineage. I, I don't believe in that. But I understand why he believed in that. I understand why he clinged so desperately to it when he was a kid working in a shoe polish factory. Mm -hmm. I understand it completely, and I, and I fully embrace it. But I don't follow it because I don't come from a class system like that. You know? uh, but uh, I tried with Devil's Backbone. I remember reading the first Harry Potter book and going insane for it and saying this is a fantastic book, a Dickensian child that lives under the stairs, blah, blah, blah. And then I saw the first movie, and I went, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And I know people love it, and it's great, but I tend to gravitate to, towards the tragedy of childhood that is Dickens. I love it. And, and I, I, there is no right or wrong. It's simply my personal taste will always make everything seem Dickensian, Dickensian when it's not. You know, I, how, I saw Harry Potter, which many people love, and they have the right to love. And, they, and, they, and I, I just went, how could I have read it so differently, so wrong, you know? And it's because I have that tendency. I have the tendency towards the Dickensian children. I mean, uh, uh, the captain in Pan's Labyrinth is uh, Sykes. It's, it's one version of that character, Sykes. Well, that's you know? very, very interesting. Yeah, but, but, but I tell you, I get it wrong a lot of the times. That's why I said no to Harry Potter 3, because I felt... Uh, the first two were very happy, mm. very happy movies. And I thought part of the undercurrent of uh, J.K. Rowling that I adored was the pathos in the books. Uh, and, and I really felt I, I don't understand happy children like that. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I understand children's having happiness, but I don't understand the notion uh, of, um, uh, you know, the way we raise our kids when we do it wrong, I think, is when we isolate them from reality. When you isolate them from experiencing any friction with the world. You know, I think that friction and gravity and impact create bone. You know, if you don't have impact, you don't have bone structure. If you don't have uh, um, contact, you don't thicken your skin. You don't get circulation. 
literally, you can learn everything you need to learn about how to live from nature and biology and things like that. And kids are the same. I don't want any heartbreak for my daughters, but God willing, when the heartbreak comes, I'll be there to help them figure it out. But what I don't want to do is predetermine that no heartbreak should come to them because they have every right to experience it. You know, and I think there's some isolationist notion, and I go through it when I try to explain people why fantasy is great for kids. You know, when they say, oh, that's too rough. Oh, that kids shouldn't see that. And I, I always say I, I find it much more immoral. I mean, free willy. You fucking swim with that whale, you're, he's, she's going to chump you in half. <laughs> and it's a real animal in a real context. I find it so obscene when the, you, the only model the kids can have are kids that are perfectly clothed, that are beautifully combed, hair, perfect smiles. If that's the only model, I want to commit suicide. You know, I, I, I really believe that imperfection is a model we can all uh, aspire to. And, and perfection is truly a dictatorship of the impossible. No one, no one is perfect. No one. Everybody does bodily functions that are not exactly perfect. Everybody at some point fucks up, is mean, whatever. And so I think that th what I love about horror and fantasy is they celebrate the different. They celebrate the fallibility. You know? and, and that's part of the attraction. I think it's time to take some questions from the audience here. You mentioned something earlier about visual rhyming. Yes. I didn't quite understand what that is. Can you explain it more and per perhaps give some examples? Gladly. Yeah, uh, you need to have seen, uh, I'll give you an example. You, you, uh, you, you see Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth. You know, for example, even between those two movies, they are rhyming. But if you remember, both movies um, open in a sort of cir circular way. Devil's Backbone opens saying, what is a ghost? And it starts explaining what is a ghost as a manner of prologue. And it closes with the exact same monologue. But now those phrases and questions have a completely different meaning. And they are supported by completely different images. Uh, all the good characters, and this is things I do that you don't need to notice. You know, but all the characters, the good characters, start with a J. I mean, sorry, the bad characters with a J, and all the good characters with a C. Uh, there are mirrors, literally, uh, in, in certain scenes in a certain way. You know, there, is, um, there are love stories that are equally tragic. You know, the, there is, um, for example, between the two movies, they are both about a kid arriving to a distant place in a vehicle. The, the first night they are visited by... Uh, an agent of the other world. They descend underground and meet that character and their story starts to change. And that's rhyming between movies and within the same movie, for example. Uh, in Devil's Backbone, the pool where the child is drowned is the exact same color as the amniotic fluid that the kids are floating in the jars. And they are essentially both suspended spirits in the same type of liquid. You don't have to notice these things, but they're there. And same can be done with Kronos or uh, uh, certainly Hellboy, uh, not mimic, 
not Blade Two, <laughs> but and I love Blade Two, mind you. But uh, I'm saying uh, the, there's very little visual rhyming, but it kicks ass. <laughs> but the other movies, I, I take care about trying to rhyme those things. You know. I heard that your favorite monster is Frankenstein. Yeah. And I want to know if you were going to redo the movie Frankenstein, how would you do it differently from the original? I would love to do it. I, I, I really fear by the time I get to it, somebody else would have done what I wanted to do. I, I say this, you guys will be the only guys to hear me say this. I will not say it again, but somebody uh, I think is going to try it before I do. I don't want to say what I'm going to do because then I really am screwing myself up. But I will do it in a way that it services every strand in the novel. The novel has never been done. Never. So all I want to do is service the strands that exist in the novel, which are impossible to service the way they've been done so far. Now, I love the movies. I think James Wales Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein are amongst the ten most perfect films ever made. Boris Karloff is a god to me. I, I write every day next to a, a statue of Boris. I've seen it. Yeah. I write, literally, people said to me, what is your most cherished possession? I said, pencil and paper. No, Boris. <laughs> I, I, I love him so much. I write every day by his side, and I feel safe. At 46, over 300 pounds, I need Boris to, to take care of me. So I adore him. I, and, I, and I like many other versions of Frankenstein. I love, for very different reasons, I love Christopher Lee's Frankenstein, the Terence Fisher one, because he really plays it like a reanimated piece of meat, like a, a, an absolutely soulless monster, completely the opposite. I love Michael Saracen's Frankenstein monster in, in the true sto- Frankenstein, the true story, written by that great writer, Christopher Isherwood. Uh, I like... Uh, 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 Frankenstein 1970 has a couple of great moments, and, and you can go on and on and on, you know, but I adore, my, my favorite monsters are uh, the Gilman from Creature from the Black Lagoon, uh, the Frankenstein creature with Boris Karloff, and Alien uh, from the Ridley Scott film, those three, and, the, and every single goddamn ape in the Planet of the Apes movies. <laughs> that's, that's a pantheon for me already. I think all of us were deeply affected by Hellboy. Yes. The concept of Hellboy being on, uh, on the outside. A demon. He's, he's like the Frankenstein. Nobody, yeah. but he wants to be an all-American. Yes. But the deal he made with the with the with the super god of the underworld. Yes. I'm I'm, I'm really affected. I'm someone who truly has been left in that. St- on the edge, and in the abyss of Wentintan, ando yeah. todavía, yeah. tratando de comprender qué le va a pasar a Hellboy. What is happening? Is in the third movie, you mean? Please, can you tell us uh, what, what, what is in the future? Oh, I really identify with Hellboy. When Mike Mignola created Hellboy, he thought he said to me he wanted a cross between the Frankenstein monster and a gorilla, both creatures which I adore. <laughs> you know, but the idea to me is <clears throat> that you can have the most delicate soul trapped in the most brutish body, you know? And this is not a new idea. Charles Lofton in Hunchback conveys it perfectly. But the beauty, the beauty of Hellboy, <coughs> the way Mike created him, is that he has the physicality of um, a sort of social realism, Russian sculpture 
or a Rodin supersized figure. In other words, he becomes the man. You know, he has this all-encompassing all uh, possibility of, like Javier Bardem is the same way. Javier Bardem is like the Rodin man, you know, like they represent humanity. Uh, physically, Hellboy is grander than life. And, and I identify with him. The third movie, if we ever get to make it, uh, it's, uh, it's pretty tough. It's not, it's not great, uh, happy, joyful, all of it. It has, it has a couple of really tough choices for him. But I really wanted very much to, the one thing I, uh, I held on from Catholic dogma, very hard, I, I really liked the idea of free will and, and choice. Choice, in my mind, is the seat of the soul. You know, if we don't choose, if we don't realize everything we do is a choice, it's, when somebody says, I have no other choice, I say, you fucking liar. Because you always have a choice. You may die, you may get AIDS, you may get uh, uh, shot in the head, you may lose your house, you may get something you don't like, but whatever you do is a choice. And you should not be ashamed of any choice you have made. And, and I think Hellboy, I wanted it to be like that. I wanted him to live his life with the choices he makes along the way because that's the only gift Catholic religion gave me, <laughs> truly, that I still cherish, that the fact that I believe every choice defines who we are. I always wondered, if you murder 20 people, you go to jail, then the jail is on fire, and you save one of the inmates, at that moment, will people tell, say the assassin, the killer, or the hero? I mean, those are, you know, and I always liked in Hellboy that every choice he makes was important for me. So the third movie has the hardest choices for all the characters. You know, it, it, I, I tried to say it in the Angel of Death scene in the second one, but it's every choice the characters made in the two movies will come to full fruition in the third movie if it ever happens. And everyone will have a very tough choice to make because I think that uh, that's what life is. I have a question uh, via te text message from my brother. He's a big uh, gamer, and he said that you're working on a video game called Insane or Insanity. And insane. He's yeah. Insane. He's curious to know as to what uh, drove you to, to video games. He says that he sees it as a new way of tele uh, storytelling, but he wanted uh, you to elaborate on, on that experience. Well, I, I think that anytime adults don't like something, I go to it. <laughs> you know, I think there must be something fucking good. <laughs> Anybody that calls himself an adult is an asshole, I think. You know, so whenever an adult says that's a childish concern, I go, oh, oh, let me go there. And, I, and video games, I grew up with video games. I was born uh, with video games. Uh, I had the first telepong, and, 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 and from then on, I have played every system, every system. That, and I've seen the medium evolve which is something adults don't pay attention to in the same way that they didn't pay attention to comic books back in the day and they didn't pay attention to rock and roll back in the day and so on and so forth, you know? I saw it evolve from a reflex coordination physical audiovisual challenge into a storytelling engine. It has gone from primal, primordial ooze to telling stories that are compelling complex and powerful. So for anyone to disregard that evolution with a moral qualm, I find it obscene. 
And I really believe that it's not me. Every filmmaker in the world should know that language because they are immersive in a way that no other medium is for very different reasons because they give you the illusion of choice and the illusion of freedom. And at that moment, you don't have to de depend on empathy, constructed empathy in the drama, which is what most narrators do. They make you identify with the character through certain choices, and you go, oh, he's a good guy, he's a bad guy. But none of them moral. That's a longer conversation. They are uh, experiential, you know? And in the video game, you don't need that because the illusion of choice, the illusion of the sandbox being so wide that you have freedom, it makes the choices of the character your choices. So it's completely immersive. That coupled with the fact that some of the best sound designers are in the video games, some of the best visual designers are in video games, and some of the most smart storytelling is there. And the fact that, uh, holy crap, and the fact, <laughs> the fact that a lot of the video game experience, I, I say that it's like playing chess with an opponent, that, an opponent that has not even arrived. You need to calculate every move in every possible permutation of that chess game before your opponent sits down. Literally, is he gonna turn to the right, open that door, not open that door? Am I gonna allow him to open that door? And if he goes that way instead of this way, why do we do? And what do we, the branching of the storytelling is fascinating. And I tell you this, I am not in good shape physically, but I try to keep myself in good shape mentally. And the most intense exercise and calisthenics I've been getting lately come from branching into writing, learning animation from the bottom up, and learning video games. Because at, at 46, I don't want to be the guy saying, damn kids and their video games. I, I want to be the other guy. You know, the guy in shorts playing that video <laughs> So I, I expect to embrace it as what it is, which is a fully formed storytelling engine, and you know, I'm not guaranteeing absolute infallibility, but we're doing some pretty crazy stuff in the video game. So tell your brother to, to take a look when it comes out. I thank you, and I'll see you in the, in the bar. <laughs>